Why don't I read our passage first today, and then uh, I'll pray and we'll get into this. Um, So it says this, Mark chapter 2, you might want to turn it open, if you've got a Bible, flick it open, turn it on, find Mark chapter 2, it's page 1089 in my Bible, probably different in yours, (laughs) but there you go, that's right, you're right there, Riley. It's not you. Okay, great. <laughs> right, should we get going? Let's get into the word, the word of God. Uh, this is what it says. Um, a few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. He can forgive sins, but God alone. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Father, we come to you now and we pray that we would be those that would see things like this. Father, this forgiveness, this healing, this compassion, this desperation to see Jesus, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We pray, Father, that you would do these things in our midst. And Lord, as we come to your word now, Lord, show us how, teach us and shape us, empower us by your Holy Spirit to do this work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I think, um, to begin with, I think there, there are some words that kind of have like different levels of meaning. So I was thinking about this, like the word love is a bit of a classic one. So uh, for example, this week, Andy Ashton, he had, is he here this morning? Oh, he's there at the back. Andy Ashton baked me some brownies and I loved Andy's brownies. They were great, they were great brownies. Uh, but I also love my wife, Alicia, and my daughter, Flora. And Sadly, Andy, not in quite the same. Like, I love your brownies, but not, like, obviously not in the same way. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes we use that word love so flippantly, don't we? Like, I love Harry Bow, I love sunshine, I love, you know, uh, but there, there's this deeper meaning of, you know, love that's like on another level. And I think as we're thinking about, we're going to be thinking a bit this morning about um, uh, uh, a mission week at Easter called Revive. And um, even that word revive, I think, is one of those words. It has kind of multiple levels of meaning. So if you look it up in the dictionary, the word revive, basically, it seems to normally relate to ba- like doing CPR on someone. Right? Someone's like unconscious in the floor, on the floor, and if you bring them back round, they are revived. Um, and, and I guess the reason we've called it revived is because we want to see people walk into spiritual life as they encounter the person of Jesus and to escape anxiety and pain and the hardship of the world and find life and fullness and joy and peace in Jesus and be revived and to also see our, our city revived, revive Lancaster. But also revive is like, I don't know if it is for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was the name of a herbal tea <laughs> or like 
or a scented candle, <laughs> you know, and uh, you might go for a spa day and then someone says, how was it? And you find, so, I'm so revived. <laughs> and by which you don't mean you passed out and somebody resuscitated you on the floor. You mean you had a lovely time in a hot tub. And so there are, so, do you know, there are some words that have multiple different meanings and it's almost like you can gear up and gear up and gear up and love is one of those. I think this theme of revive is another. You could probably think of lots of other words that would be like that. And I think we join Jesus in Mark chapter 2 in a point in his ministry where he's almost taking what it is that he's doing and he's reinterpreting it from one way of understanding it and he's taking it onto a whole new other plane from I love Haribo to I love, you know, a spouse, a daughter, a son, you know, a family member. And he's elevating what it is that he's doing. So, um, so far in the Gospel of Mark, he's basically been going around healing lots of people. That's the main thing that, that, that Mark has covered. He's healed a, a guy with an impure spirit. He's healed a man with leprosy. He's healed, and he, there's loads of other, you know, just says he's healing lots and lots of people. And then um, in, in um, verse 38, Jesus says, let us go somewhere else to the other villages. So, you know, to almost get away from all these people that are so desperate to be healed um, so that I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. And then he goes throughout the whole of Galilee preaching a message. So healing was really important. And obviously people are suffering and they're ill and they, you know, there's an immediate need there. But he's saying that actually there's something more, there's something above that. And I want to gear up and I want to bring something that is actually more than that. It's a message and it's a message that, and we thought about this a few weeks ago, he's saying, you know, um, uh, repent and belief for the kingdom of God is at hand. This idea that, you know, he's establishing not just healing in the lives of individual people, but this thing that he calls the kingdom of God, this beautiful space that isn't like, you know, in the time, you know, this, this context would have been ruled culturally, politically by the Roman Empire. That would have been the kingdom. He's not saying he's going to overthrow the, the, the Roman Empire, but he's saying that on a, on a kind of level that's so like under the surface and insidious from house to house, as it says in the book of Acts, there's going to be this kingdom established where people can escape the pain of life and to begin to live life in the fullness of the joy and peace and celebration of knowing God as Father. And it's going to be beyond just, oh, somebody being physically healed. But it's like this whole new way of life that brings such joy and meaning and significance and ultimately the flourishing of the whole world. And so he's, he's going from, you know, this is really important. This is blind person that needs to be healed. So actually, we're going to revive this planet. And that's the message that I want to bring. And so in Mark chapter 2, you get to this point where that's kind of what's happening. Jesus is preaching a message, and it says he's in someone's house, and the house is so full of people that literally no one else can get in. And Jesus is doing what he came there to do. He's bringing this message, you know, the restoration, the revival of the planet. And, and it says that it's so crowded, no one else can get in. So you imagine it's like, um, I was joking with Jamie and Andrew before at the back, sometimes you've probably never been in a situation like this. But in those gigs, if you've ever been to a gig like this, where you put your hands in the air, you can't put them back down, <laughs> back down again. That's, that's what it would have been like in this room, just people packed and packed and packed and packed. And finally, it's like, you know, you get to this point in the story and it's a sense of, you know, oh, finally, Jesus is, you know, he's doing what he came to do and he's, he's preaching the message. And then, and then it's, but it's almost comical then what happens in the midst of this story in that uh, as he's preaching, 
you know, dirt starts to fall from the ceiling and land on the heads of people, and like this sort of dust starts to fill the atmosphere, and the people being sat there would have heard like this kind of scratching noise above their heads, like what on earth is going on? As, and you know, I don't know what Jesus does immediately. Maybe he tries to, you know, just we're just kind of plowing through like we normally do when like the microphone goes wrong inevitably, and there's a bit of feedback or something. You know, we'll just we'll just plow on through. Maybe he keeps going for a bit, but it just gets worse and worse and worse, and eventually. Um, shafts of light start breaking through the dust that's in the room and uh, the air starts to clear. I presume at some point they, they have to stop um, and just allow what we've just read to, to unfold. And they, what happens is these four friends have taken this person, the friend of theirs who's paralyzed, and they're so desperate to get him to Jesus so that he can be healed that they've wheeled him up onto the roof. They've dug a hole in the roof. Now they're lowering him through the roof, which is pretty extreme, I think you would agree. Um, you know, you kind of imagine that in our context. It's hard to imagine, and it's, it's a different context, isn't it? But you imagine if Hope Church was that full, you were so desperate for your friend to get in that you took them up, up on the roof and found a hole, which wouldn't be hard, and then <laughs> lo- <laughs> lowered them, <laughs> and then lowered them through. Except it's not quite the same because the context here would have been a it would have been a single story flat roof with an external staircase uh, around the outside up to like a terrace on the top. And then the, the roof would have been like clay soil with um, probably joists and then rafters in between. So these guys presumably, says they dig through the roof. So they dig out this kind of soil. They remove some of these battens. They take out, maybe have to take out even a, a joist from the roof. I think this is a really stupid thing to do, but that's what they do. And, and they dig through this guy's roof. But you can't help but escape from the fact that, well, for one thing, they have ruined this guy's house. Um, thankfully, they don't have the weather that we've had <laughs> in the last few days. Um, so, you know, the rain was less of a problem. But they have basically ruined this guy's house. They've interrupted Jesus as he's talking. On the inside, people are inevitably going to be covered in dust and hay and whatever else is like this roof is made of is going to be everywhere. And then they lower this guy in. It's just rude. Is it? <laughs> like, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? Um, and, and just as a sidebar, I... I to, I guess, the main message of what I want to say this morning, I just want to say to you, it's okay to be really passionate and desperate for Jesus. And actually, that's a thing that is encouraged. Um, and, and sometimes it's kind of a bit messy. And sometimes it inconveniences other people. And, you know, there's an extent to which, you know, we want to love other people really well. But sometimes you just have to do whatever it is that you need to do to get to Jesus. And that is okay. It's okay. And I think sometimes, you know, this can be a, a hard message, and I, I want to talk about it specifically in a worship context. As we're here in church, and you're thinking about how you're coming into this space Sunday by Sunday. And, and that's not to say that Sundays count more special than the rest of the week, because, you know, Paul says in Romans 12, doesn't he, that all of life is an act of worship. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. But there is something that's like distilled and like even more potent as we worship here on Sunday morning that then fires you up and like creates space for you to encounter God that kind of fills you up so that you can then go and worship him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, and, and just, you know, as you're coming in here, just to feel there is this permission to do whatever you need to do to get to Jesus. I mean, please don't obviously make a hole in the roof. Um, <laughs> that's probably not the thing that you need to do. But just there's something beautiful about freedom in worship of just doing what it is that you have to do to get close to him that we just have to make space for 
and allow, whether you need to be the person that throws your hands in the air or kneels on the floor or dances down the front and uses these aisles and the space in this building just to get into his presence with a sense of desperation. And I, you know, I just want to say there is permission to do that. Um, and, and, it, and it might be that occasionally it makes a bit of a mess and you know, people might not necessarily quite understand it. And we want to manage that well, um, but we want to make space for the Spirit to do whatever it is that he wants to do in your life as well. Okay? So a bit of a sidebar, but just to say, and, and that can be hard as well, actually, because you might, just to say, you might be someone who's maybe been here for years and years and years, and sometimes you feel this passion rising inside of you. And maybe it's a passion on a Sunday morning to like throw your hands in the air. Maybe it's a passion at work to tell somebody about Jesus. You feel this passion rising inside of your soul, and then you think, oh, yeah, but people will think I'm a bit strange, or people will think I'm a bit weird. And especially if your friends and family are there, and they've known you for a long time, you think, well, you know, if, it, uh, if I'm a stranger, then it's easier. But if people know me, then it's a lot harder. Just to say, you know, to take that step of boldness and courage and confidence to say, you know, just to, to do whatever you need to do to get to Jesus. And that's what these, these four people do. They take their friends. They literally dig a hole through the roof. They interrupt Jesus and they bring him to, to his feet. And then something very strange happens. Jesus uh, looks at this guy there lying on the floor in the middle of this room. And obviously, the thing that we're all expecting is that Jesus will heal the man. That's why they've brought their paralyzed friend. They thought, well, Jesus, you know, he's got this healing ministry. He's the guy that can heal our paralyzed friend. That is why they have done this. And then, of course, what does Jesus say? Well, he looks at them um, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and I think there, there are a few issues with that, that that I think they would have had at the time that we might have as we read it, even kind of a bit of a theological issue. And so three things that I think I just want to address as we think about what, why does Jesus say that? Why does he say to a man who is paralyzed that has been brought to him for healing, son, your sins are forgiven? Well, firstly, I mean, who does he think he is? That's the objection that people have at the time as they see this man lying on the floor. What does he mean, your sins are forgiven? I mean, if I... If I said that to you, you'd obviously think I'm a bit strange. Like It's a bit of a weird thing to say. And for context, you know, imagine, um, for example, uh, Steve and I, I blocked Steve at the end of, this is quite a relatable uh, illustration, but I blocked Steve in at the church car park at the end of the service. Steve is late for an appointment. Um, and then uh, he gets very angry with me, and Steve like slashes my tires, maybe in my car. We get in a bit of a fight. And this is hard to imagine, but just pretend that he does. Uh, just, you know, we get in a fight, and Steve, Steve absolutely decks me. That's not hard to imagine. And then, <laughs> and then you know, so I get very angry, and I'm like, oh, Steve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue that guy into the ground for all he's worth. So I, you know, lawyer up, and I, and I, you know, press charges and all the rest of it. And then someone else comes along, say, Russell here comes along, and he's like, and he says to, to, to me, uh, sorry, he says to Steve, Steve, I forgive you. Right, how would that make me feel? Like, I mean, who does, he, who does Russell think he is? He can't forgive Steve on my behalf. Steve, he's, you know, look at the tires on my car. Uh, you know, and that's kind of like how absurd this would have seemed to these people. You know, I mean, who does Jesus think he is forgiving people's sins? I mean, what person has the, the right and the authority to forgive sins? So that's the first objection. Se- second objection, which I think is one that we would feel today, is kind of, well, how... How judgmental of Jesus, you know? Here's this poor guy with a disability, literally lying on the floor in in a pile of dirt, with all these people watching, 
And Jesus wants to call him out for like some things that he did wrong. Like, are you being serious? Like it just, it, it, do you know what I mean? Does that not just jar with you a little bit? Because that's the, I guess maybe it's the cultural moment in which we live where, whereby, you know, we just have this sense that, you know, everybody is kind of a good person. And I think I've said this before, but sometimes it feels like the greatest commands of today's society are, are thou must be true to yourself and thou must affirm your neighbor for whatever self they choose. And so, you know, who is Jesus to criticize this guy and tell him that he's a sinner, he's lying on the floor? Like, he should be free to just live whatever kind of life he wants to live, as long as he's not hurting anyone else. Then why does it even matter? It's almost like offensive, isn't it, that Jesus would somehow say that to him? You know, that he's a, a sinner. And, and, and look, he's a, he, he's, a power, he's a disabled man lying on the floor. Like, Jesus, have you not got the compassion to, to see what he really needs? He obviously needs healing. And if you're able to do that, why are you talking about his kind of private moral life when so clearly he needs to be healed? And then there's the third problem, which is that throughout the New Testament, this kind of idea of, Forgiveness of sins is there, and it's always kind of couched in this idea that, you know, you, you come to Jesus, and you, in faith, come to the foot of the cross, and you repent and believe. And as you are, because Jesus won't force his way into your life, but if you approach him and you ask him, then he will forgive you. Okay, and the emphasis is on that something that, that, you know, it's like there's this gift, but you have to receive it. You know, we always talk about this kind of Holman Hunt painting, don't we? If Jesus is knocking on the door, but you have to open the door to him. And here we see this paralyzed man, he's, his, sons, his sins are forgiven, but he doesn't come to Jesus to ask. He doesn't say anything. He's just lying on the floor. His friends are the ones that have brought him. And then Jesus says to them, he says, um, he says uh, where is it? He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your sons are forgiven. So, so is it the, friend, the faith of the friends of the paralyzed man that mean that his sins are forgiven? So that, does that mean, for example, you could bring someone to church and if you pray for them in faith that their sins would be forgiven, they'd have a relationship with Jesus, then they would be able to have a relationship with Jesus even if they weren't even aware of it? Well, obviously not. Like that's you know, that's not what we read in the scriptures. There's this genuineness of, of relationship where it's about, it's about the way in which you respond to him and he responds to you. And it's, it's, there's this kind of, you know, thing that you, you meet him for yourself, right? And it's not up to your friend to introduce you to Jesus, but it's something you do yourself. And I think that third objection actually starts to then unravel some of what's actually happening here in this story. Because, and I confess that I did not think of this. <laughs> this was, it was t- totally stolen off a guy called Tim Keller who's much cleverer than me. And I was listening to him talking about this passage and I thought, you know, that's just amazing, isn't it? He was saying that, that he thought what, the only way that we can understand this is that somehow that paralyzed man on the floor was desperate for something other than being healed. He was desperate for something else. And he doesn't say it. In fact, Jesus says, doesn't he, their faith. So he's talking about the friends, but he's also talking about the paralyzed man on the floor. His faith, his faith is what means his sins are forgiven. So let's just step inside this for a minute. Now, we don't know exactly what that man, that paralyzed man is feeling and experiencing. And we must confess that I think so often for many of us, and there's a great lesson in this, that sometimes when we see people that are struggling with a disability, 
we sometimes only see them through that lens. We think that person with a disability, their number one problem is the fact that they're disabled, and that's all they're struggling with. And maybe even as we read this passage, we have that assumption. This man's paralyzed. That's his problem. He's paralyzed. Well, maybe that's part of his problem. Maybe there's a deeper problem. Maybe there's something else going on in his life that's beneath the surface. And maybe actually he's terrified of being healed because then maybe that sense of inadequacy and the sense that he feels unworthy will be brought into the surface because he's got nothing left to hide behind anymore. Perhaps he goes into that space with Jesus feeling ashamed, feeling like somehow he's not worthy, somehow he's not enough, somehow he needs to be forgiven. Somehow he needs to be made right, and he doesn't even know what it is, but he just knows that there's something not right within the depths of his soul, and he feels that sense of inadequacy. And as he gets lowered there before Jesus, his heart is crying out before he's even healed for something much deeper. To take from, you know, healing on one level, one meaning of the word love, one meaning of the word revive, but he's crying out for it on a totally different plane, totally different level. And you know, the thing that I love about Jesus is, you know, because often we think, well, we pray the sinner's prayer and that's how you get forgiven, isn't it? Or you kind of have to say these certain words. But Jesus sees what is on the heart of people. And, And to me, it seems like the only logical way to understand this is that he sees what is on the heart of this poor, paralyzed man what's crying out from within him, and he speaks into that. And in that moment in the room, he's not a disabled man. He is speaking into his soul like he's the only person in the room. And he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And maybe the miracle for him is not the fact that he walks out there carrying his mat. Maybe the miracle for him is actually for the first time in his life, whilst he's lying there on the floor in the dirt, he feels valued, He feels like someone has seen him and known him. He feels like he's worthwhile. And he feels like he's loved just as he is. And that's the miracle, right? That's the miracle. And then, so if if that's, that's the first objection was how can, you know, this man be forgiven. The second objection was how can Jesus speak to him like this when he's on the floor? You know, isn't it just so judgmental? And then you think, well, actually, you know, come on, isn't this not what we all experience and feel? Who does not feel at times that sense of inadequacy, that you are not worthy, that you are not enough, and crying out for something more? You know, I think sometimes the problem with the age in which we live, is that there's so much emphasis on like, oh, you, you know, you are, and we, we, some of us, have, a little while ago, we went away for a day in, um, in Birmingham with this a guy who's, uh, he's an emeritus professor of psychiatry at Bristol University, his name's Glyn Harrison, and he was talking about the way in which so often the message of, of the times in which we live has been, you know, you are special, and you are wonderful just as you are, And you are a good person on the inside, and you just need to reinforce that message, and then you'll start to feel better about yourself. And he says, actually, well, the studies have shown that when you try and speak that kind of message to yourself, if you're struggling with self-esteem, actually, it makes you worse. It makes you worse to use those kinds of reinforcing messages. And maybe it's because there's a kind of emptiness to it, and you think, you know, I am special but then it just, it just highlights that nagging feeling at the bottom of your heart that knows that, no, there is, <laughs> there is actually something not quite right with me. And I know that I need to be fixed, and I know that I need to be healed on a deeper level. 
And so that's what Jesus speaks to here. And he's, he's speaking to the very depths of our souls this morning, you know, and saying to you, you know, you might feel that even as you walk into church this morning, maybe because of your background, maybe because of your accent, maybe because of the way that you dress, maybe because of things that you've done in your past, maybe because of who it is that you are, you feel that sense of unworthiness and shame and like you don't belong. And you need to hear those words of affirmation from Jesus. You are forgiven. And we'll think a little bit more about exactly what that means in a moment. But third objection, and this then helps us to understand exactly what Jesus means by that. The third objection was the one that the Pharisees have at the time, which was, who, who is this? You know, how can Russell forgive, forgive, um, I've forgotten which way around it was, Steve, you beat me up, didn't you? So how can Russell forgive Steve on my behalf? You know, how does that work? You know, because Russell has no authority to be able to do that. Only I could forgive Steve. But the thing that we must understand, is, of course, is that, that Jesus is the owner of the universe. And I heard someone say it to me like this recently, sometimes the reason why we feel that sense of inadequacy in our lives is because the universe has a grain. There's a way in which the universe works. And if you run against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And that's why so often in life we find it is hard and it's difficult and we feel ashamed and unworthy because we're not running in the way in which God would have us to run. And we get splinters. And of course, the owner of that universe is Jesus Christ, right? There's not one square inch of creation over which he does not cry mine. And so only he has the authority to say to you, yes, you might have messed up. You might have got things wrong. You might have made mistakes. But guess what? This place is mine. You are mine. That person is mine. Everything is mine. And so I have the authority, the ability to say to you, it does not matter anymore. Because he's got the power, because he's got the authority, because he owns the place, right? And then secondly, he has the authority to forgive sins because not only is he the universe owner, but he's also the cross bearer. And so he takes the weight of our sin and shame. He carries it up to the cross of Calvary. He dies upon the cross. And as he dies on the cross, he bears the weight of our sin. He takes it into the grave and then this, and you know, that's his mercy. And then what I love is, is just think about this. You know, we're thinking about those words, right? You can understand love on this level, but then there's a whole new level you could understand love on. There's a revive on this level, revive on a, on a whole new level. And you think, actually, with Jesus, his life is infinite. And so with him, these concepts are infinite. There's infinite love. There's infinite peace. There's infinite joy. There's infinite grace of every kind, of every measure. And he has authority to forgive your sins because at the cross, he pours his infinite joy, his infinite love, his infinite grace, his infinite peace into your heart. And that's what this man experiences there as he's lying on the floor. And now, finally, Jesus does say, and it's almost like it's a footnote, you know, now get up and walk. And, and he's not saying it because that's necessarily what the man even needs. He's saying it because He's just proving the point that he is the owner of this place. He is the authority to forgive this man's sins. And so he can walk out of here like a free man. So it's just amazing, isn't it? You think, what was that guy thinking as he came into the room that day through the roof, <laughs> as he was going to meet Jesus? He was expecting to be healed on one level. And Jesus blew his expectations away and healed him on a totally different level. 
right? He did what, what the guy expected, but he went above and beyond. And guys, I think this is kind of what our understanding has got to be of Jesus, is that every time we, maybe as we come into church, as we meet with each other and pray, as we read our scriptures, that there is a potential that he takes our understanding of what we expect him to do, and then he smashes it through the roof, in a, you know, not from the top down, from the bottom up, um, and, he, and he takes it onto another different plane. And, you know, you might come to Jesus expecting, you know, here's a guy who's going to help me find some kind of purpose and meaning in my life. And then he becomes the purpose and the meaning in your life. You might come to him expecting to experience and feel some kind of sense of love and joy. And then he becomes your source of love and joy in infinite amounts. And there is more and more and more for you to press into and dig into and move into more than you could ever even imagine. I love it in Philippians, when, um, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, um, when, when Paul, um, let's see if I can find it quick. Should have looked it up before, shouldn't I? Someone nicked my page. <laughs> this is always, here we go. Ephesians chapter 3, um, <laughs> when Paul is um, praying for the Ephesian church, he says, uh, he says um, oh, that's chapter 4. <laughs> when Paul is when praying for the Ephesian church, he says, um, he says, uh, yeah, he, sa- he says, yeah, I, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your e- inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul prays, he says, you know, I pray for you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might even begin to grasp how high, how wide, how long and deep is the love of Jesus Christ. And know the fullness of God. And then he says, verse 20. Now to him he's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. According to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory of the church and Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, maybe this morning you have had a sense and expectation of what it is that Jesus can do for you. You know, love on one level. And he's saying, you know, now it's time to gear up. And to start to imagine things on another level. And to start to see, you know, church on another level. And the mission on another level. And God's work, the Holy Spirit in other people's lives on another level. And he's inviting us into that to, to, to believe, you know, that we can overcome. And saying, you know, e- even you, and in the midst of your shame, you're someone who's struggling with gambling. Or someone who's going through a divorce. Someone who's struggling with an addiction. Yes, even you. In the midst of your sin and your shame, even you, I want to take you and help you to overcome that so that you can be like these friends who passionately bring their paralyzed mate to Jesus and passionately worship and pour out your life. And so I guess as we come to think about this mission week that we're going to be doing in Easter, um, Revive Lancaster, you know, I want to just invite you to just think, well, God, you know, this is the God whose love we cannot even begin to grasp. That Paul prays we would even know the, the heights, the depth, the length, the width. This is the God who's able to do more than we could ever even possibly imagine. And maybe it's time to kind of step out in faith again and to believe, and not just to believe for Lancaster and believe, you know, God could do great things here, which he can but also to believe for you, 
You know, maybe it's, it's, it's a faith and a belief that, that God can actually use you. You know, it's what, I, what, I, what is amazing, actually, about that verse in, um, in, 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 in Ephesians is, you know, he says, to him he's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, within us. So, so Paul is saying, you know, God is able to do immeasurably more than you can imagine and ask. Not as something that happens out there, over there, apart from you, but something that happens through us. Right? He's able to do immeasurably more than you could imagine or ask through you. I can remember a, a few years ago, um, I, uh, this is a slightly humiliating story for me, as most of my stories have been this morning. Um, <laughs> I can remember a few years ago, I went to go and someone, a friend of mine asked me to go and speak at an evangelistic event in, in Manchester, and so I went down on the train to this thing, and it was like an open mic night, um, which is one of the worst things to speak at, because basically no one is there to hear about Jesus, they were just there for some music and like to watch their mate, you know, singing whatever, or doing sort of stand-up comedy or something. So I go and speak at this open mic night, and it's like a 10-minute slot. Uh, that I've got and um, just to try and talk about the gospel. And anyway, it was one of those where I just went feeling incredibly underprepared. I think I was slightly ill, um, was not feeling it at all whatsoever. Got, got up, I had a couple of notes on the back of an envelope um, and just kind of fumbled my way through 10 minutes and I could sense the tumbleweed floating past and uh, it was just an awful experience or, and then uh, you know, get to the end and I'm hoping somebody might come and encourage me literally nothing <laughs> no, one say, no one says anything um, and then I go home and try to forget the whole experience ever happened like it was it was, what, it was a particularly low point you know sometimes you have times you speak like oh it was great I really sort of sense the presence of God this time was not like that at all um, it was it was awful um, and then anyway a few years later um, I think it was th- three years later I then bumped into somebody that was there um, and she said to me oh did you did you not come and speak at that open mic night in in Costa in Manchester like three years ago and I was like in my head I was like yes that was me out of my mouth came the words I don't know (laughs) 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 was that could have been me Um, and then she said yeah Um, and then she started to tell her story and she said you know I'd 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 actually been struggling with uh, self-harm and depression um, and I was gonna she was a student so I was gonna quit university and go back home and just kind of give up on God. And it was, and a few other things happened, but she said it was that point in that moment as she was speaking that things really start to change. And at that point, I get, and I'm like, wow, it must have been, it must have been really good after all. <laughs> so I'm like, this is great news. And then she says, yeah, I don't really remember what, much of what you said, but it was one quote by C.S. Lewis, and that was it. And I was like, wow, so it wasn't even, <laughs> it was nothing that I even said. It probably was awful. <laughs> and the one, the one redeeming thing that's, that actually made a difference was something that I didn't even come up with. Um, <laughs> I just love it. That's the grace of God, isn't it? That, you know, we, we just kind of step out of, as unworthy people, you know, uh, who, who are just kind of faltering and we don't really know what we're doing, but we, we step out in faith um, to believe, you know, that he can do immeasurably more than we can imagine or ask as we come to him. Maybe you come to him expecting one thing and then what he gives you is a million times greater than what you first thought. And that was my experience, you know, on that night. I thought, you know, coming expecting one thing and then... God's doing immeasurably more than I could imagine or ask through what could only be his power and not my own. And it's just wonderful when you say it like that, isn't it? And you think for you, you know, just an encouragement for you guys. I think, I don't, I don't know what it looks like. Maybe it is that passion in worship to just know, I, you know, I've just got to release this within my soul to worship Jesus with all that I am. 
Maybe it's telling a friend about him. Maybe it's like putting yourself forward for something. Maybe, maybe there's been something that's been niggling away. You felt that call of the Lord to go and do. And, and you know, just that encouragement to say, you know, I, I can step out and do it because he has made me worthy. Maybe it's even just coming in here today and you've come in here feeling and sensing that sense of unworthiness. And, and maybe you'd expected one thing. You'd expected the Jesus that would be like, you're a sinner and you need to make yourself better. And you need to kind of brush up a little bit. And the Jesus that you're hearing is the Jesus who wants to do more than you could imagine or ask. And actually wants to take you as you are and make you worthy and make you whole and fix you and put you back together. And what I lo- another thing about this little detail is you see, Jesus says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? And you see that it's in as he speaks that the man's sins get healed. It's, it, his sins get forgiven. It's as he speaks, he gets healed. And so you see, it's God's words that fix you and put you back together. It's not what anyone else says. It's not what you say. It's not what the news articles say. It's not what Facebook says or Instagram says. The only voice that counts is his. And what he says about you. You know, beloved son and daughter, you are cherished. You are mine. You are whole. You are healed. You are forgiven. It's the voice that spoke creation into being. And it's the voice that will speak wholeness into your life as well. In Ezekiel 37, there's this vision, some of you remember this, there's a vision of of dry bones filling a valley that Ezekiel sees, and it's as God speaks that the dry bones come back to life, and flesh and muscle and bones and blood and sinew gets put back on, and that's what it is. As you listen to who it is that he says you are, you get put back together, you start to experience that sense of worthiness, don't listen to any other voice.